Please open your Bibles, if you would, back to Hebrews chapter 5. You can take a pew Bible, if you would like, and open it so that you can follow along. It's very important that you do that because one of the core commitments of this church is expositional preaching. That means that we go verse by verse through the Bible and we explain what that verse means. And we try to do that in the context because it's very easy to lift a verse out of the Scriptures all by itself and in some ways make it say whatever you want it to say. And frankly, there are some passages in the very text that we'll be covering this morning that have been used to that effect, I hate to say, over the years by pastors who would like to emphasize one particular warning without couching it in the great encouragement that it is set in. Hebrews chapter 5 verses 11 to chapter 6 verse 20 is one complete unit of thought. It is one complete unit of thought. And you really can't understand any one part of it until you see it all fitting together. And so that's why we're taking this rather large section and explaining it here this morning. If I were to summarize it, I would say that I've got some very good news for you this morning. I've got a great encouragement for you. Christian, I have got a wonderful, uplifting, encouraging, soul-satisfying, gospel-centered word from God for you today, and I want you to prepare yourself to receive it. In fact, this was described by one theologian as a blessed digression. You see, the the people that the author to the Hebrews is writing to, or as I've said earlier, this is likely a sermon that was preached to them and written down, is addressing the fact that in light of their Jewish tendencies, they are in danger of going back to Judaism as a way to escape the persecution that comes to them for following Christ. And as a result, he needs to draw them back over and over again to the supremacy of Christ. Earlier, we saw at the beginning that that Christ is our glory in the book, and then later that Christ is our rest, and then now we're in a series called Christ our Mediator. The high priest we saw last week who goes between us and the Father who makes way for us into his presence, but today we're going to look at Christ our teacher, the great instructor of the people. The one who is able to take the ignorant and make them wise. And in a particular context, what he wants to do is take these very well-educated Hebrew Christians and spur them on to not be lazy by simply taking the very lowest hanging fruits of the gospel, the very introductory knowledge of the gospel, and not really appropriating it, internalizing it, taking it in, digesting it, and therefore putting themselves in a position where they might be vulnerable because of their laziness to be drawn back into Judaism and to miss the glories of the gospel. So this is a blessed digression. And it's necessary because the author had already introduced something about Melchizedek, And while it's a little bit difficult for us to understand that, it was true back then as well. And it's a very deep and significant truth that he wants to unpack. But as he just got to introducing it, he realized, I need to remind the people that if they're going to really appreciate this, they've got to focus their attention and some of them have become lazy. And so he wants to address this before diving into the story of Melchizedek in chapter 7. 
This little, little parentheses, this little instruction about Christ as our teacher is going to explain how he brings us to maturity. And that should be your goal, maturity. In fact, in our little mission statement here for the church, what we talk about is helping believers to reach spiritual maturity through the proclamation of the gospel. That's the goal. So that you don't remain young in the faith, but that you become strong in the faith. You don't remain a child, but you become a grown man, a grown woman. That you don't become only a learner, but somebody become a teacher. And that is done, as explained in these passages here, in three particular ways. Three particular ways. By studying the Word of God, that's the first. The righteousness of Christ, that's the second. And the assurance of hope. The Word of God, righteousness of Christ, the assurance of hope. So let's begin by, by looking here at the Word of God. The author begins by saying about this, which is namely the priesthood of Melchizedek that he was trying to introduce earlier. He says, we have a lot to say. And I want to pause right there for a moment because that word say is the word logos. I know some of you are familiar with that Greek word. It appears quite often in the New Testament. It's going to feature prominently here. It's the logos. He says, I have, a, I have a lot to logos. I have a lot of this deep truth about the word of God, the logos of God, the incarnation of Christ. I have a lot of Christology to explain to you, and it's so deep and so profound, I've had to push pause for a moment and acknowledge the fact that truthfully, I'm not really sure you can handle it. Because it's hard to explain, it's hard to speak. Not because the doctrine itself is that complicated, but because the one receiving it isn't ready. The one receiving it is still at the entry level. And so he says, I would like to speak more, but you become dull, literally to be slow, or even negligent, or even resistant. You don't want to hear it. You found something else that you prefer, something easier. And so, because they become dull in their hearing, he has to confront them, and he says to them very clearly that by this time, many of you should be teachers. You've been saved long enough. You see, there is an expectation, beloved, that you grow. Just like when you plant something in the ground, you have an expectation that it's going to grow. You see it the way that it is on day one, and you don't say to yourself, alas, there is no hope. This is as big as it's ever going to get. You say, no, I plant this here, and I water it, and I fertilize it, and I make sure it's getting enough sun so that it will grow into what I envision it being. Uh, just this weekend, I completed a project at the house where I had to um, install some hedges, and my uh, three sons were kind enough to help me with that, digging holes and moving large shrubs and installing water lines, and you step back afterwards and you look at it and it's not really that impressive. Why? Because those hedges are rather small at this point. There's big gaps in between them, but, but you plant it with the hopes that in a few years or a few months maybe, it'll grow in such a way that they come together and they form this canopy, they form this hedge, kind of one big unit. You can't really differentiate one from the other. In many ways, friends, that's how the Christian church is meant to be. Uh, individuals who, who grow up as these little sprouts, but as they continue to get larger and as they blend together and they become fruitful, it is this one beautiful, healthy, strong, fruitful, glorious manifestation of God's presence on earth through his people. 
That's what the author wants from them. And unfortunately, they weren't really living up to it. He came back year after year, and it was still just this little spindly thing. And in fact, there's a great danger there that some of them may have deceived themselves into thinking that they were something that they're not. And we'll see that in a moment. But he says here that what I would like to do is to give you something more, but I am stuck with these principles, these basic principles of the oracles of God. And I would draw your attention to that word oracles because, again, it's the word logos. In fact, down there in verse 13, the word of righteousness, again, is the word logos. You see, it's the word of God that is necessary to bring a person to maturity. But that word of God isn't just the initial basic principles, the initial truths of the gospel. It is much more than that. And he says to them right now that you need milk and not solid food. Please note this, and it's very important to see the distinction. When he says, you need milk, not solid food, he is not saying, I need to give you milk instead of solid food, because he's going to give them solid food. He is saying, you've put yourself in a position where that's what you need. You put yourself in a position where that's all you think you can handle. You're still nursing, as it were, which is fine when you're a month old, but when you're 10 years old, it's absurd. And so what you have here is him saying, this is what you, you need instead of meat, but I'm going to bring you from being someone dependent on the milk to someone who can handle the meat. Because everyone who lives on milk alone is unskilled, notice at verse 13, in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But you don't want to leave people in their childhood. You want to bring them to maturity. And so he goes, I'm going to give you solid food, which is for the mature. Please note that word. That's our goal, isn't it? Maturity. Uh, this word is the word telos. It's a word that means to bring something till the end, to complete it. It was used in other literature to talk about finishing a course of study. And so you know that somebody has reached a point of maturity when they have their powers of discernment trained through a constant training here to discern something. What is it? <laughs> he says, you are going to know a mature believer, a solid food Christian, because that person who eats the solid food of the logos, of the righteousness of Christ, of the word of God, of these things that he wants to say, these, these, these truths about Christ, these deep, profound, life-changing realities, you're going to know uh, which one can handle that because they have discernment. And the discernment that they have here is between good and evil. Now, now let me make a note here. This is not between what is inherently good and inherently evil. I mean, even the most elementary Christian should be able to discern that. These are the different words for good and evil, meaning what is pleasing and pleasant and sweet versus what is sour and off-putting. It, it is something that is more subjective. So as you grow in your discernment, you're going to be able to identify what is good and pleasing, what is satisfying, what is rich, what is, what is going to build you up versus what is going to tear you down, distract you, and pull you away. And the way you do that is by understanding more clearly day by day the Word of God. That's the first way in which Christ becomes our teacher. He draws us back to the Word, the Word written and the Word incarnate. If I may back up just briefly and remind you of something we said earlier in chapter 4, which, which I know was a little bit of a clarifying point for some of you, 
When we talk about the Word of God being sharper than any two-edged sword, it was written before the Bible was completed and compiled. The author there was not referring to the 66 books of the Bible printed on nice paper and bound in a leather cover and sitting on your lap. He was talking there certainly about the Word of God, which we now understand to be those written and inspired texts. But back then, it was really hearkening back to the Old Testament and Old Covenant and the prophetic words from God, his, his word to us. What does he say? What does he speak? His blessings and his warnings. And we are told in the Gospel of John that those words that he speaks to us is found most vividly in the incarnational word, the Logos, the word, the Son, Christ. That's the testimony that will pierce into your heart. That's the testimony that has the sword, as it were, at your throat, plunging it in to kill the sacrifice. That is the one where you realize that I am naked, exposed. My head is held back. I I have nothing to say in light of the glory of that truth about the Son. And that is why it is so glorious that that very Son says He came not to judge the world, but to redeem it if they will put their faith and trust in Him. That's why you have to include John 3.17 when you quote John 3.16. To understand that the very presumption were you to see the glory of the incarnate risen and returning Christ would be that I am doomed. And he says, no, if you're in him, you rejoice at his coming. In fact, it becomes the anchor of your hope, as we're going to see in a moment. So here, it is through the Word of God, the Word of God written, the Word of God incarnate, that one becomes mature, but there's more than that. And the second point is this, the doctrines of Christ. The doctrines of Christ. I said the righteousness of Christ earlier, I misspoke. The second point is the doctrines of Christ. And so he continues, therefore, and he says here, uh, (laughs) instead of giving you what you need, or what you think you need, I'm going to give you what you really need. And he says, let us then leave to to move beyond the elementary logos of Christ or doctrine of Christ. This is critical, beloved, to understand. He says, I want you to move past the very elemental, introductory, day one understanding of the righteousness or the logos of Christ, the word of Christ, the gospel. If you're going to move on to maturity, you have to get beyond that. He doesn't say abandon it. He doesn't say reject it. He doesn't say it isn't important. It's vitally important. Because without the foundation, the structure falls over. Without the foundation, the structure won't stand. The foundation is critical. But you want more than the foundation. If you tell me that you're building a home, and you invite me over to visit you, And I show up, and after I pull into the driveway, you meet me, and you say, come, I want to show you my house, and all we're doing is standing on a concrete slab, I would be less than impressed, especially if you had just communicated to me that it's finished. I mean, this is is it. What do you think? I'd say, brother, I think you need to get, you know, beyond the foundation. You need to build up from here. This is great, but you got to go up higher. And this is what the author is saying. So what's the foundation? Notice there are six there. He gives them to you in three pairs. Repentance and faith. The idea of baptism or washings and the laying on of hands. And the resurrection and the judgment. Those are the the three pairs. The first thing is repentance and faith. 
what is repentance? Well, it is simply the turning away from sin. What is faith? Faith is obviously putting your faith in Christ. Are those elemental aspects of the gospel? Absolutely. Do you have to understand that to be a Christian? Yes, you must. Turning away from sin, putting your faith in Christ and Christ alone. There are no works that you can do to earn your salvation. The second one is a a word there, sometimes translated baptism, which is not actually the best translation because it's not what the word actually is. It's not talking about being immersed in baptism. It's talking more about the Old Testament references to to ceremonial cleansing. Uh, Did you realize that you could be unclean without being sinful? I mean, there was a whole process in the Old Testament about making yourself worthy to come before the Lord, to offer your sacrifice. And if something had happened to you during the week, you could become unclean. Didn't mean that you were in sin necessarily. It just meant that you were no longer able to be with the presence of, uh, or or the the other people in the presence of God. And so there were all these um, understandings that had to be clarified for the Hebrew Christians. What does it mean once and for all to be cleansed by Christ? I no longer have to worry about washing my hands a certain way and observing certain rituals. That's all gone. It's all fulfilled in Christ. And then the laying on of hands, which could mean several different things. In the Old Testament, it was common when you were identifying uh, those who were in a particular position of leadership. Sometimes it was how a blessing was bestowed or gifts were bestowed. I think about the laying on of hands for Timothy. Uh, Sometimes Paul uses the laying on of hands to, to signify that somebody receives the Holy Spirit. Whatever it was, it was clear to the people and was clearly part of the original teachings. You had to know repentance and faith and what it meant to be clean and what it meant to have the laying on of hands. And then you also had to know about the resurrection and judgment. You had to be aware that the resurrection of Christ was a physical bodily resurrection that resulted in his ascension once again in bodily form to sit at the right hand of the Father. And you had to understand that he was going to come again in judgment that he was going to return, and that he was going to judge the living and the dead. And all of this provides the foundational understanding of the gospel. Are those good things? Absolutely. (laughs) These are things you must understand. Repentance, faith, cleansing, laying on of hands, resurrection, judgment. But those are the basics. He says, is it possible that you can understand those things and yet not be converted? And the answer is yes, and that's the big risk. The big risk was that some of these Hebrew uh, people who had gathered were not genuinely Christians. I mean, I mean, they could fill, out all of, fill in all the blanks in like fundamentals of the faith. I mean, they knew all the answers. They had been instructed well. They understood intellectually the gospel, but it had not made its way into their, their heart. They hadn't really taken it in such that they were converted and bearing fruit. And so please, don't for a moment think that he is in some way putting down the value of what we just described. These six things are good things. They're foundational things. They're milk, and you need milk. But milk is not enough. And sometimes those who remain drinking the milk reveal that they're not even capable of more because they're not genuinely converted. They just understand it in their head. And so... I want to move you past this, he says. And this, verse 3, I will do, or we will do, basically together, if God permits. What are they going to do? They're going to move beyond the elementary. They're going to move beyond level 1. He says, this is my goal. So, verse 3, that's my goal. 
I am going to, by God's grace, with you, move you now off of milk and onto solid food. So are you ready to take this journey? That's what he's going to do next. So as we unpack the doctrines of Christ as that which leads us to maturity, he says this, for it is impossible, verse 4, meaning that God makes decisions that cannot be reversed, as we see in chapter 6, verse 18, and chapter 10, verse 4, and chapter 11, verse 6, that it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. You see, the first step in the process to maturity is to identify the risks here. And the risk is that one might understand these things intellectually, but never grow beyond that. Now, I want to say at the very beginning that this is an encouragement to us. You can't simply pick out this text and preach it on its own. If I might, with all due respect to people who may have done this, suggest that it is less than wise pastoral practice to lift out these verses and allow them to comprise a sermon by itself. Because it doesn't give you a true flavor for what's going on in the context. It would be as if you reached down and picked out one ingredient off the pizza and then tried to describe to somebody that that's what it tasted like. You can't just choose this one thing and exposit it because you may, if you're not careful, turn it into a weapon against people that causes them either to doubt their salvation or wells up within them some kind of fear of not living up to an external standard and use it to control them. So we're going to study this, but it's going to be in its context. Now, what exactly is he saying? He is saying that there is a warning out there. And as long as you do not have any reason to fear the consequences of the warning, then you don't need to fear the warning. Yesterday, I went to get my car washed, my truck, because it was due It had been about six months. And as I was pulling into the car wash, there was a warning sign. It was letting me know how how high it was. It was letting me know the, 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 the height limit. Meaning that if I was traveling in a vehicle that was more than eight feet, one inches, that I needed to stop right there because I wouldn't be able to fit inside the car wash. Now, I was able to cruise right past that warning with absolutely no fear whatsoever. I laughed at that warning. I mean, I just put the pedal to the metal, and I drove right past that warning with no concerns whatsoever. Why? Because I'm short enough. Because I don't have any risk. So so if I might, not not to in any way diminish the significance for whom this does apply, but for the rest of us, as the author will say later on, I'm not concerned about this for the majority of people who are in this room today, gathered and assembled, who understand the gospel, believe it, and has it converted them, and they are changed, they are bearing fruit to the glory of God. This is a specific warning for certain people, specifically for those who remain resistant to taking what is foundational and applying it to their lives so it's transformational. But let's still understand what he's saying because he uses very specific words. Notice it. He says that I want to move you beyond the elementary, again, logos, doctrines of Christ, 
not to abandon them, but instead to remind you that it is possible that you become so fixated on those that you move away from the opportunity to grow and advance in what is truly converting to you. And it's impossible if you have been enlightened, and that means to know the truth. If you have tasted of the heavenly gift, that means the grace of salvation. The word gift there is the word grace. So if you have been enlightened, if you have tasted, if you have shared, even in the, in the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, not, not meaning indwelt by the Holy Spirit, because that's only for believers, but, but if you've shared in it, uh, you've been in a place where the Spirit is at work, maybe in a church, uh, you have been around friends who are filled with the Holy Spirit and, and bearing fruit of the Holy Spirit, uh, you've been a partaker of it, a beneficiary of it, as it were, you have seen that work, you have tasted of the goodness of the Word of God. Now, that word is not logos, that word is rhema. It's the, the speaking words. Basically, you've sat under the consistent preaching of the gospel of God. You have heard his word spoken with all of its blessings and all of its rebukes. And you have seen the powers of the age to come, the signs and the wonders, both in the Old Testament and the New. And you've been around, you've, you've seen all of these things that have happened. You know the power of God. In the Old Testament, think about the Jews who came out of Egypt I mean, they saw everything. I mean, they saw God do amazing things. They, they saw God bring ten plagues upon the ten gods of Egypt. They saw God destroy the most powerful nation in the world and bring it to its knees. They knew what it meant to go to their neighbor as they were lamenting over the death of their firstborn and ask them to give them stuff so that they could pilfer the Egyptians on their way out. They then got to the sea and God parted it so that he could let them go through on dry land and then drown Pharaoh's army. They got to the other side and the first thing they did was get together and start complaining. <laughs> they saw everything that God had done and yet it hadn't changed their hearts. Did they, or were they partakers of the glory of God? Yes, they were, but were they genuinely changed? No. In fact, that's why so many of them died in the wilderness and never entered his rest. The New Testament parallel is in the church. You have people that are, that are gathered and possibly here, that, that understand what it means to be among the, the people of God. We sing these songs together. We hear God's word preached together. We, we see him at work in the lives of others. And we think that somehow, just because we're in the same room, that that's going to be enough. I don't have to actually personally believe. I don't have to personally be transformed and converted. It's a warning to those people. In fact, not only this, but they had seen these signs and wonders. And in the midst of it all, they fell away. What does it mean to fall away? What it means here is to apostatize. It means to apostatize. It means to, to understand that gospel, maybe even to claim that you believe it, and then to reject it. There are lots of examples I could go to, but the most powerful one, in my opinion, comes to us in Acts chapter 8. So if you'd like to turn over there, you can see that. Acts chapter 8. It is the story of a magician that magician's name was Simon. And really, the entire narrative is absolutely fascinating. But there was a great man in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 9, whose name was Simon. And all of the people were so impressed that Simon became a Christian because he was a great man and really important. He was like the original celebrity convert. 
It's like people think, well, if only so-and-so would get saved, man, that would really advance the cause of the gospel. If only we could get a genuine Christian fill-in-the-blank, president or governor or celebrity somebody. If only they would get saved, man, that's what, that would be the ticket. And that's essentially what's going on here with um, Simon. Simon is a celebrity. Simon's a great man. Simon was, was, was renowned in the region, and now Simon hears the gospel. And I want you to notice that, that Simon wasn't just interested the way that like Benjamin Franklin was interested in the, 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 the preaching of Whitfield. He was, he was genuinely, it seemed, changed by it. Like, like he really wanted to be engaged. In fact, the wording here is, is very unambiguous. If you go to, to verse nine, uh, 13, it says, Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing the signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Just consider that for a moment. Simon Magus believed. was baptized. Followed. I mean, isn't that it? Isn't that, isn't that what you're supposed to do? Isn't that, isn't that the, the, what you'd look for in a convert? It sure seems so. That's what the apostles thought. But then when the Holy Spirit was poured out, what happened? Simon says, <laughs> I didn't mean to say that, but that's kind of funny, isn't it? Simon says, Simon says, I want some of that. In fact, I'm willing to buy it. Simon says, I want it. I'm willing to buy it. I'll give you money for it. And Peter, because he sensed a good business opportunity, negotiated a fair price for the Holy Spirit. No. What does he do? He says to him in verse 21, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness. Pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Beloved, no true believer has a heart that is wicked before God and is in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered this, revealing what his heart was like. Pray for me, so the Lord, to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Peter says, you want to buy the Holy Spirit so you can add it to your bag of magic tricks? May your money go to hell with you. You've got no part in this. You're not a believer. It doesn't matter that you believed it intellectually. It doesn't matter that you were baptized. Lots of unbelievers have been baptized. It doesn't even matter that you followed along. I mean, you would have joined the church probably and would have felt really comfortable being in there. And everyone would have looked at you and said, wow, what a trophy. So great that he has a picture of our church on his Instagram account. I mean, just so many people now are going to come and be a part of our group. He says, it's all irrelevant. You've revealed what's in your heart, and you're not a true believer. And his response after he hears what's coming is, well, why don't you just pray for me then? Why don't you just pray that none of this actually happens to me? Because guys like me don't deserve this kind of consequence. That's an apostate. That's what's in mind here. That is why he says, if it's possible, may the Lord forgive you. Why? Because generally it's not possible. Because the person has hardened their heart such that they are not going to yield to God. Oh, is it possible for God to save them? Yes, he can save anybody. But the point is that God is not going to compromise his own character by somehow responding to this apostate. 
as a general rule, those who have heard and they've taken it in and they have tasted it and they're aware of it and they've been in the presence of it and then they reject it and they turn on it and they are repelled by it, it is an indication of the hardness of a heart that will not turn to God. Therefore, it is impossible. Our prayer for them is that, oh Lord, make it possible somehow, by whatever means necessary, break them of their rejection. So this is the one to whom the warning applies. This is the person that's in mind. Because what they have done is basically treat Christ the same way that the people did originally, and that is with utter contempt. They reject him, they crucify him, they hold him up to open shame, and they don't care. Some of the most vicious opponents of Christianity were people who were once in the church. And so what they do is that they come face to face with the true gospel, they reject it, and then they turn on it and Christ and everyone who follows him. Now there's an illustration here that he uses, an agricultural illustration that would have been very common to the people in those days. He says, verse 7, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop is useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, and therefore it receives a blessing from God. It's that uh, covenant language. It's a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. More covenant language. And its end is to be burned. You see, the illustration here is very simple. Uh, when there is an investment made in land and it is cultivated and it is watered, the expectation is that the land will produce fruit. And when the land produces fruit, the land is blessed. And when the land does not produce fruit, the land is cursed, the land is burned, the land is repurposed. Let me allow Jesus to give an illustration here. Uh, Jesus, in Mark chapter 4, gives one of the most vivid illustrations of what this looks like, and so we should understand it. Mark chapter 4. Again, rather long passage, so I won't read it to you in its entirety, but you're familiar with it. This is the parable of the soils. The parable goes like this. There was a man who went out to sow, and he reached into his bag of seed and he cast the seed, and it fell onto four kinds of soil. Uh, there was the hard soil, the one that was packed down because people walked on it. And that soil couldn't receive the seed, and so the animals came along and just ate it. Basically, when you cast the seed onto ground like that, you're just feeding the birds. And then there was another kind of soil, and it went in there, and it did begin to, to sprout up. It was kind of like Simon. He believed. He was baptized. He, uh, he joined the church. Hey, there was something there. But the problem is, all of a sudden, persecution came. And it withered up and it died. And then there was another area where the same thing seemed to happen and the little shoots came up, but then the cares of the world got a hold of it. And, and like um, weeds and thorns, it wrapped around that tender little plant and choked it out. And the purpose of those illustrations is to show you that that same gospel is preached, that's what the seed means, and it is thrown out there, and sometimes it has no effect whatsoever, it just ricochets off the person who heard it. Other times it goes in, but that person, after they've sort of heard the gospel and they, they claim to believe it and they seem to be a part of the church, the, the persecution comes and they just fall away. I think that's what a lot of these Hebrews were at risk of becoming like. And then there's another group where they say they believe the gospel, but then they realize, wow, this is really going to cost me. I'm going to have to give up some things that I really enjoy. 
and I'm going to have to engage in some things that I find really hard. And, and, and this is awkward for me because of my family dynamics and my friends, and it's asking too much. And, and you know what? I just need a break. I just need to get away from church for a little while. It's just too much for me. And, and then that little while becomes a long while. And then you find, well, maybe I can find some friends who are a little bit more like me, and they still also claim to be Christians, but they also indulge in the same sins I do. And you know what? That's a much better fit for me. And you leave the true gospel, and you embrace something else, or you reject it completely. And then there's a fourth soil. This was a soil where the seed came in and the plant began to grow and then it bore fruit, 30, 60, 100 fold. Of all those soils, only one represents a true Christian. And Jesus explains that to his disciples afterward. Because <laughs> the disciples heard this story and they were like, I, I, don't, I don't get it. And they called Jesus aside afterwards. And in fact, later they rebuke Jesus. They say, you know what, your stories aren't making any sense to people. Like, like you're supposed to be the master storyteller. <laughs> it ain't getting through. Somebody needs to help you with this because your whole delivery, it's, it's failing. You, you need some help in your preaching. That's literally what they were doing. And Jesus says, guess what? I am using parables as a way to keep truth from people. The most, the most shocking thing you will learn as you grow in your knowledge of Scripture, one of the most shocking things you'll learn, is that parables were not used by Jesus to illustrate truth and make it easier to understand. They were used by Jesus to hide truth from those who were not elect to hear it. That's why he says at the end, he who has eyes to see, let him see. Ears to hear, let him hear. He tells his disciples, no, 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 I am withholding these things from people. I'm clouding the truth in this parable because it is only those who have been truly chosen by God who see through it, understand it, and believe it. The one who bears fruit is the one who is a genuine believer. All the rest is just chaff to be gathered up and to be burned. So there are three ways in which the teaching really helps us to grow to maturity. The first one is the Word of God, as we saw. The second here are these doctrines of Christ, a true understanding of Christ. And then the third is the assurance of hope. We see this in verses 6 through 20 of chapter 6, the assurance of hope. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, it's very personal. This is why I say it's an encouragement. Friends, listen, you cannot let somebody tell you about the warning passages in Hebrews, especially Hebrews 6, without insisting that they clarify that immediately after giving that warning, the author says, by the way, I don't think this applies to you. And every pastor ought to preach it that way. To say that as a general rule, I don't think that those warning passages apply. I think the very people who need the warning passages aren't here this morning. The warning is that those who are here not divert onto that path. And so he says, I don't think this is you. Friends, I want to tell you that as a pastor, I have the rare delight of saying with all sincerity when asked by my pastor friends, what is it like to be the pastor of that church? that I can say with integrity, it's a delight, generally speaking, a delight to pastor this church. It is a delight to be the pastor because the vast majority of the members of this church love Christ, love the gospel, 
are willing to do what he has called them to do in obedience and gratitude, growing in holiness and maturity. They are present. They are active. I don't have to go around trying to find them all the time. They are not divisive and vicious. They don't bite. Not all of them. And not everyone can say that. And the author here is saying that even though Hebrews was written to correct a bunch of people who were running the risk of going back to Judaism, he says with a heart full of gratitude to God, I don't think this is for you guys in your case. He calls them beloved the only time here. He says, in fact, we feel sure of better things, (laughs) better things for you. Mark the word better. Better happens all the time in the book of Hebrews. We have a better high priest. We have somebody who's better than the angels. Better is the favorite word, it seems, throughout this sermon, throughout this letter. And the author now applies it to the church and to these believers. He says, nope, we got better plans for you. What's better? And then what's it better then? Let's answer the second question first. What's it better then? Better than the elementary things. Better than just knowing repentance and faith and the washings and the laying on of hands and the uh, resurrection and the judgment. It's better than that. It's better than just that you know how to preach the gospel. And it's better than you just know that you're cleansed in Christ. It's better than you just fixate on eschatology and trying to sort out when things are going to happen in the future. Better than all of that is this. And he gives, uh, gives examples right there. Look at it in the next section of the paragraph. What does he commend them for? Number one, their work. It's the word ergon. It means, it's like the work that God um, ordained beforehand that you should, should demonstrate. Ephesians 2.10, I think it is. That at the end of that beautiful passage in Ephesians chapter 2 that, that traces everywhere from your election all the way to your glorification, he says, you have been set apart by God to do good works. That's a manifestation of fruit, your work. And not only that, but your love. The word agape, the love that you have, the love that God gives you, the love of Christ shed abroad in your hearts to others. And then finally, he talks about the ministering that you're doing to each other, the serving. It's the word deacon. And literally, you could translate that section like the deacon work you keep on doing as you're deaconing. Um, (laughs) The emphasis goes back to the service. So what does a true believer look like? He or she is not one that simply understands the fundamental principles of the gospel and can rattle them off the way, frankly, any demon could, but somebody who has actually taken in that truth, ingested it fully, believed it, it's converted them, and it is now manifest in fruit-bearing, namely in their work. The way that James says, show me your faith through your works. Not the works you do to earn salvation, but works you do because you're saved. And love, genuine love that you show for one another and even to the world. And then this service to one another here in this case within the body. That's how you define a true believer, a fruitful believer. They work, they love, they serve. Now, he says all of this is critically important because they have a very strong desire that each one of you would show that same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. (laughs) He says, if you persist in these things, you will grow in hope. And you will only persist and grow in these things if you reject the temptation to be sluggish. Verse 12, to be slow 
so that you won't be what I described you as earlier or said was a risk. No, you are not going to be one of those slow, sluggish, resistant, ambivalent, professing believers who aren't truly converted, but you are going to be a fruitful one who imitates those who had patience as they waited for God's promise. Now, there's no better illustration of somebody who waited patiently than Abraham. And so he goes in to describe him. Once again, the author goes back into the Old Testament for these Jews to one of their heroes, namely Abraham, and he says, let's use Abraham as an example. Do you want to know somebody you can imitate because of their patience as they waited for God's promise? Abraham is the guy. Verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And by himself doesn't mean he swore alone. It means that he swore by his own name. Verse 14, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, those of you who are copious students of the Bible would raise an objection at that point, and you would be curious, how is the pastor going to handle this? Because, because you've read ahead. You're one of those students who in the first week of class reads the entire textbook. You know exactly where we're going, and you're saying to yourself right now, I recall in Hebrews chapter 11, two specific places where the the author says, Abraham didn't see the promise. So what are you going to do about that? Well, don't worry, because I prepared for it. And the answer is this. We're not talking here about the promise of the land. We're not talking here about all of the promises contained in the full Abrahamic covenant. What the author is talking about here is that when Abraham's faith was put to the test, he received back what God had promised. What is the one thing that God promised Abraham? He promised him an heir. And when Abraham's faith was tested, And he tied up Isaac, and he put him on the bundle of sticks, and he raised up the knife, and he was going to plunge it into him to kill him. It was stopped. And God provided a substitute. Oh, a beautiful doctrine that we're going to learn more about later, the substitutionary atonement. And he said, take your son back. That is the the fulfillment of the promise that Abraham saw. He was patient. He waited. He waited many years before God actually fulfilled that promise to give him a son. And then he received him back after he was prepared to kill him in absolute faith that somehow in the future God would provide yet another heir. He got his son back. 4 verse 16, people swear by something that is greater than them. God has no one greater to swear than by himself. So when he makes a promise, it is going to happen. He puts his very character, reputation, and his being on the line. And so he says here that that people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. What that means is that when you you come together and you make an oath, you leave it in God's hands. You say, I swear this is true. May God prove me a liar if I am. So when God, who doesn't even need to swear, desires to show something more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, which is as unchangeable as him, He guaranteed it with an oath. Now, friends, look down at that word guaranteed. It's a Greek word that is transliterated, mediated. Remember we said in this series, he's our great mediator. He's the one who goes between. So here he mediates 
negotiates, provides for this guarantee with an oath. Verse 18, so that purpose by two unchangeable things. What are the two unchangeable things? The first one is the promise. The second is the oath. Those are your unchangeable things. Two unchangeable things. The promise and the oath. By those two things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. That's why we call it the the assurance of hope. What is going to move you along in your development from milk to meat? What is going to help you remain strong in the face of persecution and doubts? What is going to allow you to be fruitful even though the cares of the world are choking you out? Is the idea that God has made a promise and he swears to you. Now when I was a kid, certain things would elicit from my parents a swift and dare I say violent response. One is were I to use the phrase, oh my God. And I don't ever recall using the phrase because I must have used it once and gotten thrashed within an inch of my life. And to this day, I hear kids on this campus using it, and it just, it just makes me shudder. I feel like just leaving and walking outside my office door and, I don't know, whatever you can do to kids these days. without hurting their self-esteem, I don't know. Back in my day. The other one, which I know I never said, but I heard other people say it, is the phrase, swear to God. Now, you might say I'm old-fashioned, or I came from an old-fashioned family, but you know what? When I grew up, we weren't allowed to use God's name like that. Never. Never. But in a sense, may I say it this way? God says, I swear to God. I swear as God. I swear. I'm swearing my name. (laughs) Everything about me. He says, if you want assurance of your salvation, know that the God of the universe has sworn by his own name a promise to you. What's that promise? It all culminates here, beloved. Here's your great hope. Here's what's going to rescue you from anything that you're enduring. Here's what is going to pull you out of your laziness and lethargy and into a pursuit that is fruitful. It is right here, beginning in verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What's going to anchor your soul? It is this, a hope. (laughs) And this hope is describing Christ. It's our hope Our hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Behind that veil that was set up to separate us from the the holy of holies. It is a hope that enters into that place. Verse 20 where Jesus, who has not been mentioned since chapter 5 verse 10. He comes back onto the scene again. And the author pulls him out onto stage. And he says, because of Jesus, this is where the hope comes from. Because of him who rose from the dead and ascended and in bodily form, Jesus, the name signifying his humanity, not only passed through that veil, but ripped it in two in the physical sense to symbolize what was going on in the heavenly dimension. And there sits down at the right hand of the Father. He has gone as the forerunner. It's a beautiful word. It means the one who finished first. The pioneer 
He went out ahead of us, and he did it, notice, on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We said last week that he is our high priest. He is the one who has been set apart for this work, and he does it perfectly. He is our only source of hope. He is our only sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm. And as we're going to see in the coming weeks, it is after the order of Melchizedek, which makes it a unique priesthood. And the author is now prepared. After telling them that some are just milk drinkers, to force feed them some meat. And beginning next week, we're going to see what he goes back into when he picks up the topic again of Melchizedek and explains for us how this relates to the glories of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are just overwhelmed by the reality of this text, that your word, that the doctrines of Christ, that the assurance of our hope becomes the very food for our souls that will bring us up to maturity. I ask today that if there be any here who are on the very precipice of apostasy, while I am not certain of any in particular, I wouldn't claim to have insight into every soul, especially those who join us infrequently, whether members or attenders. But yet for each and every one, I pray that today would be a day of sober reflection as the warning warrants, but also deep and profound and rich encouragement that by and large for most it doesn't apply. And for those for whom it does, that path has been chosen over and over again many times up until now. And so we trust you in your judgment. We trust you to do what is fair and right. And we implore that you will do that which is so often impossible because you are the God of the impossible. That you would draw any such person back to yourself in repentance, genuine conversion, and then fruitfulness for your glory. And all God's people said, Amen.